Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, welcome to the historic 1767 Juan County Courthouse. Uh, by, by the Constitution, the Supreme Court of North Carolina is to hold court in Raleigh and such other places as designated by the General Assembly. In 2004, in recognition of the restoration of this beautiful facility, uh, the General Assembly designated that the Supreme Court of North Carolina could hold court here in Edenton. And we are grateful for that and certainly grateful for all the uh, folks here in uh, Edenton who have done so much to uh, welcome the court. Uh, the case we have this afternoon is Holmes et al. versus Moore et al. And we will hear from the appellant. Good afternoon, Your Honors. May it please the court, Pete Patterson for the legislative defendants. We are sharing time with the state board defendants who will get seven minutes, and I would like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal. The Superior Court's determination that SB 824 was motivated by a desire to entrench Republicans by targeting African American voters is unsupportable both as a matter of law and as a matter of fact, and for those reasons, the Superior Court's judgment must be reversed or at a minimum remanded for application of the correct legal standards. With respect to the facts, there are two in particular that demonstrate the unsoundness of the Superior Court's ruling. First is that five Democrats voted for SB 824, and there is no explanation for why five Democrats would vote for a bill designed to entrench Republicans. And the Superior Court had no explanation for that fact. The second is the sweeping reasonable impediment provision pursuant to which SB 824 goes out of its way to ensure that all voters can vote regardless of whether they have a voter ID. Now the Superior Court mentioned that the General Assembly was told that under the prior voter identification law, HB 589, 184 out of over 2 million voters did not have reasonable impediment uh, ballots counted. Uh, first of all, 184 is not much of a basis upon which to build an entrenchment theory, but, but there's more than that. The General Assembly took at least six steps to drive that number lower. First is the expansion of the number of qualifying IDs, adding student IDs and state and local government employee IDs, which the General Assembly was criticized for excluding from HB 589 because they were disproportionately held by racial minorities but also was the creation of the free no documentation voter IDs available at uh, early voting locations in each county, which um, again is disproportionately used by African Americans. So no General Assembly intent on entrenchment would Pash, do that. Let me ask yes. you a fairly basic question yes. before you get too much further into your argument. Uh, do you contend that any of the majority findings of fact lack sufficient evidentiary support? Yes, um, and first of all, the ultimate finding of fact, which is that this well, I mean, was I mean, based I under on... I understand that you're yes. challenging the legal conclusion. Yes. And so are there any of the specific evidentiary findings of fact that you are contending lack sufficient uh, record support? Yes, I would okay. say that each of the predicates to the ultimate, you know, for each of the Arlington Heights factors, the competent evidence does not support those. And also, particularly in paragraph 111, the Superior Court got basic facts about the voter ID law incorrect. So this is in discussing public assistance IDs. And the Superior Court said, well, there's no explanation for why you would accept federal government employee IDs, but not public assistance IDs. 
but the law does not accept federal government employee IDs. So the Superior Court got this basic <coughs> fact about the law incorrect, and the evidence in the record, Professor Callahan indicated that federal government employee IDs are disproportionately white, so the exclusion of those does not bespeak any discriminatory intent. But of course, we're also challenging the legal predicate upon which the court based its decision and that it did and, and, not. And I'm, I'm clear, I'm clear on okay. that. I mean, okay. I understood that. I was trying to understand whether what we had was a challenge to any discrete finding of evidentiary fact, not the application of the Arlington factors, not the ultimate conclusion, but just the evidentiary facts. Right. You've mentioned 111. Were there any others? Uh, in paragraph 111, they also said that the eligibility period for the free no documentation voter ID is one year, when in fact it's 10 years. So that's another basic, uh, basic error of fact. Um, but in terms of, you know, what, what happened other than those things, the provisions of the bill, the legislative record is all, you know, a matter of, of public record. So I think... Um, so, it, so, is it, so is it fair to say, and, I, and I'll stop yeah. interrupting you a second and get the preliminary, yes. the preliminaries out of the way. Is it fair to say that with the exception of a couple of things that you've indicated, your argument is really either that the... Uh, applicable legal standard was misapplied and and or that the Arlington Heights factors were misapplied? Yes, so Your that's Honor. essentially what we've Yes, that's essentially what we're arguing and that there's not competent evidence to support the ultimate conclusion and apart from that the incorrect legal conclusion was was Thank applied. You. Thank you. But as you have responded to the question, it seemed to me that you also contested uh, uh, findings of fact based on uh, various uh, uh, testimonies of uh, certain of the plaintiff's experts that uh, I believe you said that uh, one didn't take into account the uh, sweeping reasonable impediment provision I think that was Dr. Quinn I think you indicated that others did not uh, fully consider the breadth of uh, what was available and whatever testing they did seemed to have been uh, in response to the prior house bill not uh, updated to reflect the changes in Senate Bill 824. Is that accurate? Yeah, that is accurate. I guess it's a bit of a challenge here to say what is a fact and what is a legal conclusion because, like I said, the basic historical facts of what happened, that's all a matter of public record. Now, what inferences you draw and, you know, whether you credit experts' testimony or not, we're, you know, it's set out in the briefs that we don't uh, accept all of those things. For example, uh, Professor or um, Ms. Ferris's testimony um, it was not competent to support a finding that this was an anomalous activity. I mean, she specifically said that nothing in her testimony addressed the issue of racial discrimination and nothing in her testimony could distinguish between what the General Assembly did in SBA 24 and the other uh, nine or ten bills that they passed in the uh, lame duck session. And we don't concede that, uh, you know, Professor Quinn had an accurate picture of the voter ID uh, possession among the electorate. Um, but and getting back to where uh, I started in terms of things that the General Assembly did to make this even more protective of voters than HB 589. So there are at least six changes. One I mentioned was the additional IDs. Another was the expansion of the reasonable impediment process from people who had an impediment to obtaining an ID to people who had an impediment to presenting an ID. So for example, now people who forget their ID at home would have that process opened up 
to them. Uh, there was a elimination of the requirement to present an alternative ID in order to have a reasonable impediment ballot count. There was eliminated ballot challenges to reasonable impediment IDs. And they also got rid of subjective reasons to discount reasonable impediment ballots. And then finally, the sixth thing is mandated education. There were four mailings that were required to be sent to every household in the state stating that all voters can vote with or without ID. So as the uh, district court in the District of Columbia in pre-clearing a South Carolina voter ID law said a sweeping reasonable impediment provision, expansion of number of IDs, making it easier to obtain IDs, and mandated out, uh, outreach and education all undermine any finding of racially discriminatory intent, and all of the same is true here. And the Superior Court ignored these changes. And that's the legal error that we point to, is that the Superior Court essentially flipped the burden of proof and presumed bad faith on behalf of the General Assembly. Before you turn to the legal yes. error, uh, sticking with the facts in North Carolina yeah. for just a moment, um, the trial court, in addition, so you mentioned the um, 184 reasonable yes. impediment yes. ballots in the May 2016 primary, which was the only time the reasonable mm -hmm. impediments process was used. But the trial court also found that during that March 2016 primary, 1,248 voters without acceptable photo identification cast provisional ballots, didn't have the reason, didn't for whatever reason, and there's also testimony in the record of individual voters about um, that they weren't offered, they came to the polling place without an mm -hmm. ID, they weren't offered in that March 2016 primary a reasonable impediments affidavit. But 1,248 voters, the, the trial court found, um, did not have the reasonable impediments declaration, they didn't otherwise cure their provisional ballots, and those votes were not counted in that election. Yes, and again, that is less than 0.1% of the, ba the ballots that were ca cast in that election, and the additional, the changes that were made would assist those voters as well. For example, there's a specific provision now that says if someone shows up with that ID and they cast a provisional ballot, they have to be given a piece of paper saying, okay, here's what you need to do to cure that provisional ballot, to make sure that if, if for some reason uh, there was a polling error, trying to uh, combat those. Um, in addition, since the reasonable impediment process, again, is expanded from an impediment to obtaining an ID to impediment to presenting an ID, if, if the problem was people forgot their IDs, again, those uh, persons now would be able to cast a reasonable impediment ballot. And for those people, we don't know why. There's nothing in the record saying why they didn't come back. They could have come back and shown an ID at the Board of Elections office within 10 days, and they didn't. Perhaps just the elections were not close enough, and they just thought, I'm, I'm not going to go through with the hassle. So there was nothing in the law that prevented those people from voting, and that's why we focused on the 184 and then and the multiple steps that were take, taken to drive even that number down. But that information, the facts about the changes that you just identified, that was all before the trial court. That was before the trial court, but the trial court ignored ignored those facts. But are, are you, you're asking us to reweigh the evidence that the trial court had and come up with. No, we're not asking you to reweigh. We're saying there's not competent evidence to support the legal conclusion that this was made for a racially discriminatory purpose, similar to the Fourth Circuit in McCrory, was operating under a clear error standard, which is higher than this court's, comp more deferential to the trial court than this court's competent evidence standard, yet that court reversed a trial court finding that there was not discrimination in HB 589. 
And so the same way this court can find no competent evidence. But again, it was built on a faulty legal foundation. And that is shown by the emphasis on McCrory. There are nearly 50 citations to McCrory in the Superior Court's decision, but not once does the Superior Court mention that the same Fourth Circuit actually held that SB 824 was likely not racially discriminatory, unlike HB 589. And this is a court that is bound by the prior McCrory decision holding that. And yet that's not mentioned one time. The court also does not mention that um, President Carter and the Carter-Baker Commission recommended a strict voter ID law. North Carolina's law is non-strict, which means that people without ID can show up on election day, fill out the reasonable impediment form, and they don't have to go back to an elections office or do anything else to make their vote count. President Carter had recommended a strict voter ID law with only two forms of ID. And, and if someone, after a phase-in period, if individuals showed up without ID, they would have to return within 48 hours with an ID in order to vote. And federal courts have upheld from constitutional challenge strict voter ID laws on that model from places like Wisconsin, Indiana, Virginia, and Georgia, and yet the Superior Court ignored all that. Are the we, different factors in Arlington Heights to be given any particular weight, or can they all be equally weighted? They can all be equally weighted. Arlington Heights is, is uh, it's, it's, the factors are just in aid of the ultimate legal determination, whether uh, there was racial discrimination. So there's not a, it's not a checklist, it's not, you know, it's not one's weighted one way or the other, it's just ultimately an aid to making this determination. And, you know, our submission is that they do not show the Arlington Heights and the ultimate facts, even apart from the Arlington Heights factors, just if you step back and look at it, why would five Democrats vote for a law meant to entrench Republicans? Superior Court had no explanation for that. Why would a General Assembly go out of its way to make sure everyone can vote if uh, it was intending to prevent some group of people from voting? There is no explanation for that. In terms of some of that which you've said, in terms of looking at the factors in Arlington Heights and looking at some of what you've said as well about such things as the Democrats that voted for the Senate bill, wasn't there some aspect, for example, uh, concerning the fact that some of the aspects of the bill weren't fully uh, populated, such as, for example, what IDs would be accepted, and perhaps some Democrats voted for some things that had not been fully uh, vetted or otherwise had not been uh, fully uh, divulged or, or otherwise developed? No, Your Honor, four of those Democrats voted for the final version of the bill. The only one that uh, didn't was Senator uh, Ben Clark had voted for it in second reading out of the Senate and then had, was absent from the concur when it came back from the House, but the other Four Democrats, Senator Ford, Senator Don Davis, and Representatives Hall and Goodman all voted for the final version of the bill. They didn't all vote to override the veto, but they all voted for the bill in its final form. And what level of weight would be given to the legislative history uh, in terms of looking at this question concerning a discriminatory intent in terms of looking at the history, uh, such as from McCrory and, and some of the other aspects that the trial court considered? Well, you can't... Uh, presume bad faith on the basis of a past discriminatory act, and that's what the uh, Superior Court did here. They said, in the, and the Superior Court said in the paragraph, be, in the heading before paragraph 110, that the design does not evince an intent to cure the racial disparities found under HB 589. Of course, as I just mentioned, there were several things that were designed to cure any disparities that possibly could be found, but that's not 
the test in the Abbott versus Perez case, that's the exact type of language that the Supreme Court of the United States said is does not show a sufficient presumption of good faith when the Texas District Court in that case said that the design did not show an intent to cure a prior taint. And so that was legal error. Also in paragraph 231, the Superior Court said that 62 members of the General Assembly voted for HB 589 and SB 824, focusing more on who they were rather than what they did. And in that same paragraph, there was a discussion of a presentation by then Executive Director Strzok, who had said that potentially hundreds of thousands of voters lacked ID and that the General Assembly was told this. But what the Superior Court ignored was that in that same presentation, Executive Director Strzok said that in mailings, to these individuals who had been identified from database matching lists, the vast majority of them that responded to those mailings said they in fact did have qualifying ID, 91% in one mailing and 76% in another mailing, so completely undermining uh, the validity of these sort of database matching exercises. And why you say that the trial court, uh, to use your term, ignored it, isn't it in the record for the trial court to consider uh, whether or not uh, it is uh, worthy of the same balance under Arlington Heights as some of the other matters, such as uh, the bad faith that was evinced uh, in the legislative history and give that whatever weight it chose? Well, I, I use the word ignored. I mean, it's ignored in the opinion when it speaks of that very presentation and highlights that there were hundreds of thousands of individuals that were not matched in database matching exercises but then within that same presentation, indication that the vast majority of people that responded to mailings regarding those uh, no match lists indicated that they in fact did have IDs. So that's a very pertinent fact that would affect the competent, uh, the competent evidence analysis, but also just shows the presumption of bad faith at every turn when there was perhaps an inference to be drawn, it was a consistent presumption of bad faith. And the public assistance IDs show that very clearly. When the, when the Superior Court said, well, it evinces bad faith to uh, reject these public assistance IDs, although the Fourth Circuit in Raymond, looking at the same legislative record, said nothing in the exchange evinced bad faith. But then the Superior Court also said, well, the later addition of public assistance IDs does not give any credit to the General Assembly because as far as we can tell, there are no, uh, uh, none of these actually exist. So how can it be both ways, that just shows they're presuming bad faith. And in addition, with respect to the IDs, the plaintiffs have not identified a, any array of ID that could narrow the alleged disparity that exists here at all. So as far as the evidence before the court shows, this is the array of voter ID that would have the narrowest possible uh, racial disparity. And then plus we have the reasonable impediment provision. Again, the plaintiffs haven't shown that there's anybody that would not be able to vote under this law. But when and, you use the term ignored, just to make sure I'm clear, when you say ignored, you're not saying that uh, the, the trial court didn't consider it, but you're saying, if I understand you correctly, that it is just not mentioned in the opinion in the factors which you've conceded the trial court could balance those factors the way that it saw fit. Yeah, well, I, I, I don't know what went on in the drafting process or what was in their minds. It was in the record. It was not reflected in the opinion. So that's what I mean by ignored, Your Honor. And I'm into my rebuttal time. I'm happy to answer other questions or preserve my time. Thank you.
morning and may it please the court. I'm Mary Carla Babb with the North Carolina Department of Justice here on behalf of the state defendants. With me is Laura McHenry, also with the North Carolina Department of Justice. Your Honors, with the short time that I've reserved here today, I wanted to um, discuss the disparate impact analysis of North Carolina's voter ID law under the Arlington Heights inquiry and evidence at trial about the state Board of Elections role in the enforcement of the challenge law. The application of Arlington Heights in the cases from the federal circuits informed that what is relevant to the discriminatory impact analysis is the provisions of the law themselves and with voter ID laws we know what is very important is looking at whether the laws have ameliorative provisions and what those ameliorative provisions say. As state defendants fully argued in their briefs presented on appeal, uh, plaintiffs failed to present evidence to establish North Carolina's current voter ID law violates the North Carolina Constitution. The trial court erred in several aspects of its analysis and the court should reverse the trial court's order. However, the most fundamental flaws in the plaintiff's arguments and presentation of the evidence and the trial court's order are reflected in those, part of the, those parts of the order pertaining to the photo ID, the voter, the photo voter ID laws ameliorative provisions. Ms. Babb, let me ask, ask the same question of you that I asked of the Patterson. Does the state, do the state defendants contend that any of the trial court's evidentiary findings lack sufficient support or is your argument uh, more directed to the ultimate fact and legal conclusion determinations that the trial court made? I think, I think our, our argument points more to the ultimate conclusion, but in our brief we did challenge some of the findings of fact, and, the, and uh, so just for example that I can I have here is the find, some of the findings of fact dealing with um, Dr. Quinn's testimony in findings of fact 130 to 134 and 141, and then the findings of fact that concern Dr. White's testimony um, which are uh, 160 to 161, but primarily we've argued legal errors and, yes, Your Honor. Okay, thank you, that's, <laughs> that's helpful. Um, uh, so the trial court erred in assessing the ameliorative provisions and Mr. Patterson has covered some of that, but I just want to pinpoint a couple, of, highlight a couple of things. The first way it, it argued, um, and again, Mr. Patterson touched on this, was that it ignored the weight of the authority from the circuit courts that demonstrate voter ID laws with familiar provisions similar to ours uh, reduce any potentially disparate impact sufficiently to overcome an equal protection challenge. And those are the cases from, from Virginia in the Fourth Circuit, Lee, Alabama, uh, Greater Birmingham, Versi from, from Texas, which was a Fifth Circuit case, and Frank, which was a Seventh Circuit case. In those cases, they had similar uh, provisions to ours. Um, but the courts there found there was no discriminatory impact and ultimately no equal protection violations. And among other notable characteristics of those laws is that they either didn't have a reasonable, reasonable, excuse me, a reasonable impediment provision, or if they had one, an extra step had to be taken to be able to vote, which is not what we have here in our, in our law. And in those cases, the court still found that there was no disparate impact and ultimately no equal protection violation. But shouldn't, shouldn't we be looking to the findings of fact and the evidence about uh, disparate impact in North Carolina? And um, in particular, for example, let me draw your attention to finding fact 141 where the court said, this court finds that Professor Quinn's results are reliable 
and establish that African-American voters are more likely than white voters to lack a form of qualifying ID under SB 824. Isn't that a finding of fact by the trial court based on hearing all the evidence, hearing the conflicting um, expert witness testimony, making his um, findings based on the evidence? Isn't that a finding of fact that we're bound by? Uh, well, that, that finding, I believe, was, was challenged by both uh, the legislative defendants and the state defendants, but e even assuming that it, that is true, the ameliorative provisions are important to look at to see that they um, reduce any potential disparate impact from the, the fact that, that uh, one, one set of the population may, have, may possess more of the qualifying IDs than the other set of the population. But, but aren't we looking, under the Arlington Heights factors, aren't we looking at this disparate impact evidence in order to determine ultimately whether the, there was a racial motivation in passing the law? Isn't that the purpose of this evidence? Uh, yeah, yes, Your Honor, it is, but when you're looking at disparate impact, so when you're, so let's, you know, you look at, let's take that as true. Let's say one, one pop, let's, despite the challenge to it, one part of the population carries more of the ID, possesses more of the IDs than the other. Um, well, then you look at the reasonable impediment provision, and it substantially reduces any burden to the population that has uh, less of the qualifying IDs. Um, and, uh, and 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 the the case law from these these other circuits say that it doesn't have to. Um, as the trial court seemed to believe, eliminate the burden completely because we know that from these other case laws, the existence of some level of inconvenience in, in the voting process does not prove discriminatory impact, even assuming that there's a disparity in some who uh, may have the inconvenience of obtaining a free ID or the inconvenience in voting with no ID and those who do not. Um, we know that from looking at the Fourth Circuit's decision in Lee, um, where the court recognized that Virginia did have a disparity as what you're, you're recognizing there, Your Honor, but said because Virginia had offered free identifications and had a cure process for provisional ballots after the election, much like North Carolina does, of course, we go a step further, that law is not discriminatory as Virginia went out of its way to make the impact as burden-free as possible. It was the same analysis with the Verse Court, the court in Frank, and then with the Fourth Circuit analyzing our law, uh, this particular law, all these relied upon a U.S. Supreme Court, granted not an equal protection case, but the Supreme Court case in Crawford v. Marion County Board of Elections that says, that says things that you must do to obtain an ID do not qualify as a substantial burden on the right to vote or even represent a significant increase over the usual burden of voting. I guess I'm asking a slightly different question in the sense that it's my understanding that the trial court's order, the reason why it was significant that so many legislators had voted on the prior bill was because it was about their knowledge about the impact on voters and who had IDs and who didn't. And ultimately, under Arlington Heights and under the disparate impact prong of, of proof under Arlington Heights, seems to me it doesn't matter whether the legislature ultimately was right or wrong. Um, it was what was in their minds. What were they intending? What impact could they, did they, would they naturally expect? And so the fact that they had voted on a prior law, they knew that um, African-American voters were more likely to lack a, an ID, that, that's relevant to what their intent was, whether they were actually at the end of the day absolutely right about it. 
Well, all of all of it, it just factors together. And if you look at the, but if you look at the law, that's what's primary. You should look at this as a, a facial challenge, and the the resulting disparate impact is in, is helpful and informs uh, the intent here. And it, it is just, it is. I'm not saying it's the only part, but it's just one part. And in this and in this particular case, it is clear when you look at the disparate impact analysis uh, that there was no. Um, equal protection violation here, along with all of the other factors. So it's a, it's a, it's a multi, I'm not saying disparate impact is the only thing you look at. You have to look at everything. But if you do look at everything, we'd ask that you affirm the, we would ask that you reverse the trial court's ruling. Thank you. Please the court. My name is Jeff Lopropito uh, from the Southern Coalition for Social Justice and the Durham Bar. I represent plaintiffs, appellees, uh, Jeff Barry Holmes, Fred Culp, Daniel Smith, Jaden P.A., Paul Kearney. Following years of litigation culminating in a three-week trial, the majority of a three-judge panel concluded that Senate Bill 824 violated the North Carolina Equal Protection Clause because it was enacted with the intent to discriminate against African-American voters. The question before this court is whether that conclusion is supported by findings of fact based on competent evidence. And the answer to that question is an unequivocal yes. The 102-page majority opinion details at length the substantial competent evidence put forth by plaintiffs to satisfy their burden under the Arlington Heights burden-shifting framework. Uh, that evidence considered under the totality of the circumstances supported the trial court's final determination that the Republican supermajority enacted Senate Bill 824 at least in part to entrench itself by burning the voting rights of African-American voters who in North Carolina reliably vote Democratic. It was then and only then that the trial court shifted to defendants to demonstrate that Senate Bill 824 would have been passed without discrimination as a motivating factor, a burden they were unable to carry. Defendants not surprisingly take issue with some of the inferences drawn by the trial court based on this evidence and their briefing is filled with countless examples of where they believe the more plausible interpretation is, at the, is one in their favor, and you heard about them in their opening argument. And they come here today requesting that this court partake in that same exercise, but it is not the function of this court uh, to reweigh that evidence. And as this court has repeatedly stated, a trial court's finding of fact are conclusive on appeal if there's competent evidence to support them, even though the evidence could be viewed as supporting a different finding. And that you, makes particular agree, sense here. you agree that um, the uh, trial court uh, was required not to overemphasize um, the prior House bill and uh, whatever uh, may have attached to that? Uh, yes, Your Honor. I, I agree that the trial court was not permitted to shift the burden of proof, burden of persuasion, onto defendants. It was plaintiff's burden to present evidence um, with regard to the Arlington Heights factors, the subjects of inquiry there, the sequence of events, the legislative history, the law's impact, and the historical background. And that is what plaintiffs did here. They put forth evidence on each of those factors, and the trial court considered those factors in the totality of the circumstances before reaching its ultimate uh, determination of, of discriminatory intent. Well, and the trial court made 50 references to the 
Virginia uh, or the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals decision in McCrory and no references to the current Fourth Circuit case that considered uh, the bill that was actually before it. What should this court make of that? Uh, well, well, for starters, um, th this court uh, is not bound by any federal decision, uh, as, as your honors know, and as you recently uh, stated in the Harper decision that uh, the North Carolina Constitution um, provides stronger protections for individuals as it relates to voting rights than the federal constitution. So where there might be the absence of a claim under the federal constitution, there may in fact be one uh, present here. Uh, but the fact that uh, the, the trial court cited, they did cite to actually both cases. Um, it, it, can, can you show me precisely where it, uh, the trial court cited and relied in any way uh, on the uh, most recent decision? Yes, Your Honor. Um, in the paragraph 252, they cite to the, this very issue that we're talking about, the shifting of the burden, and they cite to the Raymond decision there. Um, and the Raymond decision supports what we believe was done correctly by the trial court in reliance on Abbott, which is it's plaintiff's burden of proof to put forth evidence. And while the, uh, um, the history alone of prior finding of discriminatory intent cannot flip that burden, it, is, it can be relevant. And, and Abbott tells us that. Abbott says that the historical background is not irrelevant. It's a consideration. And Abbott also tells us that the prior legislation's intent can be considered by the trial court. Um, and this is from 138 Supreme Court, uh, the Penn Sites 2327. The intent of the prior legislature is not irrelevant. It can be considered to the extent it naturally gives rise to or tends to refute inferences regarding the intent of the later, later legislature. Uh, then Judge Kavanaugh in the South Carolina uh, case, which, which uh, defendants cite to a number of times in their briefing, notes that under Arlington Heights, ongoing legislative action with the knowledge of uh, disproportionate impact might be some evidence of discriminatory purpose, depending on the other facts and circumstances. And that is what we submit that the trial court did here. They considered uh, different factors uh, as it relates to the sequence of events, the legislative history, particularly the fact that during the legislative history, um, opponents of Senate Bill 824 put forth, um, they raised concerns in debate. They put forth evidence in the form of data, uh, the prior no match uh, list performed by the State Board of Elections, the Curry report, which was the, the uh, expert report in the House Bill 589 litigation, which showed that uh, disparate ID possession. Um, and then the, the Kimberly Strack presentation that noted the fact that the reasonable impediment provision that everyone in 2016 believed was a, a, a foolproof cure, uh, in fact, was not one. And, and that showed, which the trial court found significant, that nearly 15% of individuals who utilized uh, Provisional ballot, ballot, uh, provisional ballot with a reasonable impediment provision um, were disenfranchised. And that's uh, independent of the other around 1,200 or so that were not given a reasonable impediment provision, which our expert, uh, Ariel White, found was, was a, constituted a larger percentage of blacks than the electorate. Um, so again, all that evidence can be considered by the trial court um, in the manner that Abbott tells us, and, and, and the Raymond Court acknowledges that too. Council, is there any enabling legislation that this legislature could have enacted um, given the purported pre previous racial motivation that would have uh, uh, not been uh, a violation of discriminatory intent or would not have been um, produced by discriminatory intent? Thank you, Your Honor. Yes. Uh, I mean, it's, it's never been our position that it is impossible to pass uh, a constitutional voter ID law in North Carolina. We, 
readily acknowledge that there is a current constitutional amendment on the books that requires that a photographic ID be presented when voting, and now it does allow for exceptions. Um, so yes, that, that is something that the legislature can do. I wouldn't say there's, a, a, there's no magic formula for how they go about doing that, but the way that the legislature can approach that task is by looking at the Arlington Heights factors. I mean, the Arlington Heights does not provide safe harbors, it provides sort of guideposts. It talks to, about different circumstances surrounding uh, the sequence of events. So where in our case, you had a scenario where the Republican supermajority tried to, to cram through this bill before they lost power on the, you know, the day after, started the process on the day after the decision in Covington, which uh, you know, set off alarms in their head that their supermajority was soon gonna be over and that they wanted to take this extraordinary opportunity to put something on the constitutional uh, uh, to the voters um, prior to an opportunity to actually vote for uh, uh, new representatives. I mean, those things have to be considered. So if you kind of remove some of the factors as it relates to each of the pieces of evidence that we've put forth to, uh, in our case in chief, surely there's a, there's a scenario where the, the General <coughs> Assembly can, can pass a, a constitutional law. And even the trial court even contemplates that, um, consistent with our theory of entrenchment, consistent with what you know, defendants expert Professor Callanan even noted, uh, that this is sort of rational behavior of a legislature trying to entrench itself by passing a more stringent law before they have the opportunity for a more watered-down bill um, to be presented. Well, what, uh, what in the plain language of this statute, uh, just the plain language, shows any sort of discriminatory intent? In the plain language of Senate Bill 824? Uh, I mean, that's a difficult question, but Arlington Heights serves to uh, provides a framework for challenging what is otherwise racially neutral laws um, because that, that's sort of the, the day and age we live in now. There's not smoking gun evidence of, of legislatures standing on the, on the floor saying, we want to discriminate against black voters, let's pass this law. That would certainly be a different case than this one. Um, but, but you could, those, I mean, your argument will always be that because of the finding of discriminatory purpose of a prior legislature that now there's discriminatory intent. No, Your Honor, that, and that's not our argument here. Uh, House Bill uh, uh, 592 and that prior finding of discriminatory intent by the McCrory Court is part of the historical background in which we assess this current law under Senate Bill 824. Nowhere in the trial court opinion will you find the fact that because House Bill, uh, that, that law was found discriminatory, therefore Senate Bill 824 is discriminatory, or because certain legislators voted for that law, therefore, Senate Bill 824, the same intent carries forward. I mean, that, that is what the Abbott case is concerned about. That is what Raymond highlighted in the lower court decision in, in, the, in the federal case. It, you know, an argument was put forth that because it's the same people pushing forth the same strategy, that therefore you can carry that intent forward unless there's some suggestion that they've done something to cure that. And, that, and that's, that's, not something that, that's not what's happening here. And again, you have to take a step back and consider it in the, in the grand scheme of all the different subjects of inquiry under Arlington Heights. Do you so, agree that the legislature did take steps to cure? Uh, the, the trial court does not support that conclusion, Your Honor. The trial court shows that the only information before the um, legislature at the time that we, they were considering this bill, and we're speaking now strictly to legislative history, not the other subjects of inquiry, uh, was the fact that the, there was likely going to be disparate impact against African Americans due to ID possession, and that the fail-safe that was touted in 2016 did not actually work the way that folks thought. So what could the legislature have done to cure in this situation? Um, a lot of different things, and again, it, you can go to different aspects of Arlington Heights. I mean, they could have taken the time to 
hear those concerns uh, that you know, Representative Harrison, Senator Smith, Senator Van Dyne all raised those concerns in legislative debate. And what happened there, and which again, then Judge Kavanaugh noted was problematic, is there was no effort to address them. They just plowed ahead. They had that time frame that they had to act in to get their more stringent bill in place, and that's what they did. Um, again, you then have to consider the disparate impact evidence that we put forth, which shows that uh, African Americans are more than uh, 1.4 times likely to lack ID compared to, to white voters. I mean, they're, they're, that analysis in a future, you know, future law, future litigation could be different. Um, but you have to sort of look at all those factors together, and um, that's what the trial court did. None of them is dispositive. Nowhere does the court just short circuit its, its evidentiary findings by saying that. Um, because of House Bill 589, that's the end of this case. I mean, there's, there's no suggestion that the legislature could, is not permitted to file, uh, uh, pass a new law at, at its first opportunity. But this law, this, in, this law in particular, Senate Bill 824, because of the sequence of events, because of legislative history that showed uh, essentially blind ignorance to race concerns, um, the fact that the disparate act impact hits both on ID possession and then the fact that the free ID is not going to be free, and that the reasonable impediment provision is going to uh, disparately impact African-American voters. And then you get to the, the, the history, which North Carolina history uh, is, has, uh, which House Bill 589 and the Covington decision is part of that history, and it goes back decades. But what is relevant in this case is that pattern, and our expert, uh, Professor Walutis, highlighted that pattern where you have racially polarized voting in North Carolina. African Americans tend to strongly vote in favor of Democrats. And there's that incentive by the, for Republicans to discriminate against them for the political payoffs. And we saw that in McCrory, and we saw that through the evidence put forth by Professor Lelutis and Dr. Anderson, that the, um, those circumstances haven't changed. There's the, the incentive remains, and it follows a pattern where African Americans have grown in terms of uh, right access to the ballot, and um, political power, and then there's a backlash against that. Um, so this, where the history comes into play, and this history of course can change with the passage of time or different circumstances on the other Arlington Heights factors, is in that, that last prong, that the, the historical background, and we submitted that Senate Bill 824 was a continuation of that pattern. Well, and again, that gets back to the question I asked earlier, if racial intent is always an argument then how can the legislature ever pass a law that, that uh, passes constitutional muster in your opinion? I mean, I think it's, it's, it, it is, no one of the factors is gonna be dispositive and that's not what happened here. The, the trial court didn't solely look at the, the historical evidence and then conclude racially discriminatory intent. Uh, I think that's, that's what you're asking. So I think in North Carolina, given, given the history of North Carolina, um, given the way that African-Americans reliably vote for Democratic, Democrats and whites reliably vote for Republicans. I mean, in, in where we are in this case today, that incentive, incentive remains. That might not be the case in the future. Uh, and, and even if it is, that doesn't mean that the legislature can't um, overcome what might be a, a, a challenging aspect of that particular factor under Arlington Heights. And again, defendants readily admit the shameful uh, discriminatory history of, of North Carolina. I mean, they take a different view of it as it comes to the last decade, but th that's not in dispute here. I mean, that's gonna be a part of these types of cases uh, potentially going forward, uh, perhaps not as much with the passage of time, but you then have to sort of look at the other prongs. You have to look at the sequence of events. So was it something that 
uh, included a constitutional amendment that sought to hide the true bill terms from the voting people and then tried to ram it through while you had the supermajority? Or was it something where there was a more uh, deliberative process where the, either the voters of North Carolina were permitted to actually consider which types of photo ID would be available, what form the law would take? Um, and then similarly, if you go to the legislative history, is it one where there's sort of open debate, consideration of ideas, and when issues are brought up, some sort of joint resolution? And you see that like in the Virginia case. How is this not a joint resolution with multiple Democrats voting with the Republicans? <clears throat> the trial court credited the testimony of Senator McKissick, Senator Robinson, Price, uh, Senator Representative Harrison, that this was not a normal bipartisan process. Factually, the only two Democrats um, who voted for the veto override, there's only two of those, and one of them was Senator, then Senator Ford. Uh, and what we know from Senator Ford's testimony is that at the time that he was being touted as sort of this, this uh, standard bearer of bipartisanship, he had lost his primary, he wasn't caucusing with the Democrats, he was campaigning for Republicans, uh, and he, we learned through his cross-examination uh, that the trial court considered, had a uh, a misunderstanding about what the law actually permitted, and then the evidence also showed that the um, Republican staffers working with leadership failed to inform him of his misunderstanding. So he believed that free ID would be available on election day, every, every precinct across the state. That is not what this law allows. And you, you would agree that if the trial court in, incorrectly shifted the burden of proof under Abbott, those findings of fact uh, are not permitted to stand? Yes, if the, if the trial court committed a legal error like the burden shifting in Abbott, uh, I agree with that statement. And if the trial court committed the error, the legal error that the McCrory court considered, which is viewing the evidence put before the court in isolation, that could also be an error. So, you, I mean, both Raymond and McCrory stand for the fact that the fact, fact findings, if supported by competent evidence, basically stand. In an Arlington Heights type case where the fact determinations are s sort of front and center of this, this uh, inquiry, I mean, I think it almost compels a result here. But if there's legal error, Your Honor, of course, that, that is something this court could consider. But we, we would submit that that did not occur here. What, what evidence was presented that um, the experts for the plaintiff con consider the amelioration provisions? I'm sorry, Your Honor, you said what evidence was presented that the experts considered the ameliorative provisions? That's right. Okay. Um, the reasonable impediment provision. Sure. So that, that sort of came up in two uh, buckets of evidence. You have it on the legislative history, which I've talked about a little bit, which is the fact that during legislative debate, various senators and representatives brought forth the fact that um, the state board's own data showed that over 200,000 people were lacking ID. The prior iteration of this law um, showed that there was potential for um, disparate impact under, because of ID possession. Um, and what we saw there was that there was no effort to sort of address that. They just plowed ahead. On the impact piece, which is sort of where this, the other area where this comes up, um, that, that is essentially what, what the uh, testimony of Professor Kevin Quinn um, sought to, to uh, inquire about. So Professor Quinn, actually assessed, he was the only expert to do a full impact analysis of um, Senate Bill 824. And he made, uh, using a, a sound methodology that no one has challenged, no one challenged his credentials, um, he made a determination that 1.4 times, that, that African Americans would lack ID um, 1.4 times more than whites. 
he found that nearly 7% of, a little bit over 7% of African Americans lacked the ID, which equates to over 100,000 voters. Um, and he found that the various IDs that were added um, to speak to the, the increase in, in IDs that are in Senate Bill 824 as compared to House Bill 589, the various IDs that were added did not actually make a difference. Um, we also saw the testimony from uh, Ariel White who spoke to the reasonable impediment provision. Again, the reasonable impediment provision was addressed during legislative debate. Uh, the information that the Ge General Assembly had at the time was that uh, some voters are gonna fall through the cracks. Um, and what Ariel White found was that the 1,200 or so voters who cast a provisional ballot without a reasonable impediment, their votes did not count. That population was more black than the rest of the electorate. And her review of the reasonable impediment um, provisional file, which is something that was made available after the 2016 primary, uh, showed that there were lots of, uh, it, it, it told the story of, of errors being committed by election officials wherein individuals would not receive the reasonable impediment. And we saw that in the case with Daniel Smith and, and um, Paul Kearney, uh, you know, as plaintiffs told their story uh, during trial. So she looked at that, what, what bill was the reasonable impediment uh, provision that you're referring to from 2016, what bill was that a part of? A uh, House Bill 589. Uh, are you submitting to the court that a reasonable uh, impediment uh, exceptions were the same under uh, Senate Bill 824 versus the House Bill? No, no, we would readily concede they are different. So um, what, what evidence is there in this record that the reasonable impediment, the sweeping reasonable impediment provisions of 824 uh, are, uh, were properly considered by any expert. Because uh, Dr. Quinn said clearly, uh, I've not studied reasonable impediment exceptions sure. under Senate Bill 824. So then that gets you to trying to compare apples and oranges with the 2016 uh, what was applied by the Board of Elections versus what 824 actually provides. What testimony is there to say that what 824 actually provides uh, would exclude any vote? Uh, I think to, to answer that question, Your Honor, I think you have to take a step back and recognize that this is a circumstantial case. We're, we are putting forth circumstantial evidence to prove what we believe is the case under the Arlington Heights framework. And Arlington Heights readily uh, acknowledges that um, you have to do a sensitive inquiry of that evidence, and it's a holistic approach because you don't have smoking gun evidence. Would I agree with you that perhaps the better evidence would be rolling out Senate Bill 824 for an election cycle and seeing what happens there? Yeah, I'd probably give you that. But the, we put forth the evidence that the, allowed the trial court to draw inferences about what might be the impacts going forward. And it's not disputed that the, the possession piece is in the record through the testimony of Kevin Quinn. I mean, you've heard reasons why it shouldn't have been credited. That's them just trying to re-weigh the evidence. There is disparate uh, possession in North Carolina uh, based on the record here between African Americans and white voters. So that is all that is actually needed under McCrory, which says that you don't need uh, overwhelming impact. You just need some impact. I mean, impact but, but, is- But if there's no impact on the election because of the sweeping uh, impediment, reasonable impediment exception because every voter in North Carolina can vote 
either with the ID or under this sweeping exception, uh, how is there any kind of impact? Yes, Your Honor, the, the, the constitutional harm alleged here is not that um, any particular voter is not going to be able to vote. I mean, that is not the legal standard here. The, the, the harm here under an equal protection challenge is that voters are being treated differently and that the fundamental right to vote for certain individuals is being burdened in a way that falls more disproportionately upon them. So our but argument- if nobody is prevented from voting, how does that show <clears throat> discrimination? Uh, the, what the trial court credited in, in the record was the fact that the combination between disproportionate ID possession, uh, the history of poverty uh, stemming from North Carolina's history of discrimination against black voters, which make them have negative consequences for political participation in the manner in which they can get IDs, in the manner in which they can travel, in the manner in which they can um, take off from work. Um, that disparate ID possession, plus the fact that um, these ameliorative provisions, uh, to the extent they, they allow someone to ultimately jump through all those hurdles and vote, great. But to the extent they're falling on a particular class that is less able to uh, overcome them because of the, the, that history of discrimination and the, that lasting impact, which is poverty, uh, and its negative consequences on political participation, um, that is what our disparate impact showing is, is, was, was put forth and was credited by the trial court. And again, you have to, that, that is not the only piece of the evidence here. You also have to consider the sequence of events and the legislative history um, and the historical background. So. Um, we can sort of drill down into the, the disparate impact. We, we made our evidentiary uh, showing there through the, the, the disparate impact uh, and the possession range, which McCrory says is all that's needed um, because under Arlington Heights also says, you know, impact is not the sole touchstone of these claims. But then you have to look at the other aspects um, as, as we did and as the trial court credited. Well, the trial court did go into a lot of detail in explaining why um, addressing the so-called reasonable impediment process doesn't deters vo voters and otherwise um, keeps people from even trying if they want to and makes it more difficult in a disproportionate way as to African-American voters, doesn't it? Exactly, and that's, that's what uh, the legislature was made aware of during legislative debate. Um, so they were aware of that fact, and there's nothing in the record suggesting that they uh, then um, made a special effort to address what Kimberly Strack at the time was telling them. Well, and, and I, uh, if I'm reading this correctly, there was also expert testimony from Professor Hood that attempted to rebut some of that, and the trial court talked about it in some detail and said, no, that doesn't really apply here, and it doesn't blunt the effect of the, the other evidence that I've already heard and decided to believe. Exactly, Your Honor. So what Professor Hood sought to do is compare the experience of a South Carolina uh, reasonable impediment provision um, in a prior election uh, to see what inferences could be drawn from that uh, in North Carolina. I mean, the same type of inferences that were drawn by looking at 2016 and going forward to Senate Bill 24. And what the trial court found was that his testimony um, did a couple things. It, it, it sort of failed to consider anything about North Carolina specific. Um, it standing in a vacuum was not a good comparison for what's going on in North Carolina because uh, in North Carolina you sort of had evidence of an ineffective uh, reasonable impediment provision. Um, and then our, uh, in rebuttal, our professor, uh, expert professor Kevin Quinn, actually showed that if you did the hood analysis utilizing, um, considering both active and inactive voters, which in South Carolina and North Carolina, active and inactive voters are still eligible voters, 
it actually showed the disparate impact uh, against African Americans both on, um, on turnout, which is what he was assessing. So again, this is, these are examples of, the, of what defendants have put forth in terms of responding to these findings. I mean, they're, they're, they're uh, you know, fact disputes masquerading as legal conclusions because they are stuck with the fact that they've considered this evidence already. The trial court sat through the testimony of Kevin Quinn, through the testimony of Nate Hood, um, through the, the testimony of um, Janet Thornton, and ultimately concluded that the evidence put forth by Plankfus was more credible um, and was competent, and therefore um, uh, that made those findings that allowed, to ultimately, allowed it to ultimately make the, the finding regarding uh, discriminatory intent here. Well, I, don't, I haven't heard anything from anybody to indicate that the, the job of looking at the evidence and determining its weight and credibility isn't well within the authority of the trial court as he exercised it here, or they, they did. Do you see that anywhere? No, no. I mean, I think that that is, uh, you know, the, there is an impressive amount of evidence supporting the fact findings that we see in this majority opinion um, as it relates both to our burden of proof and even then when the burden shifts to defendants in terms of... Um, is there anything in any of the cases cited by your side or the other side that would indicate that the treatment of the evidence here isn't within the trial court's authority in analyzing the Arlington Heights factors? Uh, no, Your Honor, and, and that's, I think, you know, when you think about some of these comparisons to other states, so South Carolina ID has been brought up a number of times by defendants, the Virginia, the Lee case has been brought up by defendants, um, and even Raymond, uh, you know, a Ford Circuit addressing this same law, it is always going to go back to the, the context of the particular case and considering the evidence put forth by the, you know, the plaintiffs and trying to choose, uh, trying to prove discriminatory intent. Um, all those cases sort of look at the same types of things. And, and you can, when you start making these comparisons, you can see you know, Virginia's law, um, the substance is a little bit different. The process is very different. They were passing a law that was meant to meet preclearance. They were trying to reconcile with the HAVA standards. Um, their legislative debate showed a very different uh, record than the one that we see here, which strikes a lot of suspicion based on the fact that these concerns were ignored, that they just rushed ahead. Um, that, again, this was the first time um, that the lame duck session was reconvened to pass implementing leg legislation flowing from a constitutional amendment. This is the first time that uh, the manner in which they did that failed to put limitations on the way in which uh, what topics could be addressed. And that's, again, testimony from our expert Sabre Affairs. So, um, no, I mean, this is perfectly consistent with how you address these cases. They are totality of the circumstance cases. They're circumstantial evidence cases. And, um, and and we would submit that they strongly support the, the findings that were put forth here, and that those findings um, compel the court's ultimate conclusion here. If no other questions, I, I ask this court to affirm the trial court's decision striking down Senate Bill 824. Thank you, Counsel. Thank you, Your Honor. Just a few points. We would submit here that the key problem here is that the plaintiff's theory of the case is not supported by the evidence in this case. Their theory is partisan entrenchment. And so we've heard talk about a 1.4% difference in ID possession. First of all, that's dividing two percentages by one another, which the United States Supreme Court has said is improper. It's actually only about a 2% difference in ID possession rates. But, and we dispute that, that that is even a valid measurement. The majority of the IDs were not even attempted to be mapped. But 
what is key here is whether people are going to be allowed to vote. Because the only way a party can entrench itself is if its political opponents are not able to vote. And this legislation makes sure that everyone can vote. We've heard about potential implementation errors, but as the Fourth Circuit said in Raymond, implementation errors do not go to the intent of the General Assembly that was enacting that law. And the, and the disparity in ID possession in the South Carolina case, there was the same alleged disparity in ID possession. It was 96% for whites versus 92 to 94% for African Americans, whereas the evidence before the court in that case. But the court said the sweeping reasonable impediment provision, which is not nearly as sweeping as the provision here, there are multiple ways in which the, the, the ones I listed in my opening, the reasonable impediment provision is more forgiving here. This is the most re forgiving reasonable impediment provision in the nation. So the notion that this was meant to be passed for partisan entrenchment just does not match up with the evidence. The other key point, again, five Democrats voted for this law, four in its final form. Why would any Democrat vote for a law that was meant to entrench Republicans? They have some arguments about Joel Ford, but not about Senator Don Davis, not about Representatives Hall and Goodman, who voted for this bill in its final form there is no explanation for why they would do that if it was meant to entrench Republicans. Um, and there definitely was a flipping of the burden of proof here in addition to what I said in my opening in paragraph 230. The Superior Court said this is not like a typical case where a General Assembly does not have to show that its law won't have a disparate impact because of that his history of HB 589. So clearly, flipping that burden of proof and, and making McCrory essentially was the linchpin of the decision. And so for all these reasons, we ask that this case be reversed or at a minimum be remanded for application of the proper standards. Thank you, Thank you Your Honor. Thank you to everyone. Mr. Clark. Rise. Oh, yes, oh, yes, oh, yes. Supreme Court of North Carolina will be in recess until 9.30 a.m. tomorrow morning. God save the state and this honorable court.